Welcome to another installment of Virtually Speaking Science, your uh, regular talk show that uh, addresses all sorts of cosmic subjects. I'm your host, Alan Boyle, the blogger behind Cosmic Log and uh, science editor for NBC News Digital. And uh, if uh, we have this show uh, transpire on Blog Talk Radio, as well as in Second Life, the Second Life virtual world. Uh, we're coming to you from the Exploratorium's uh, virtual space, and so we want to thank them for that. And thanks also to Pulse Avatar for my uh, cool-looking uh, avatar in Second Life. And, uh, of course, thanks to uh, my colleagues at Virtually Speaking Science, including Sherry Reason. Uh, and... Um, if you could see me in Second Life, you'd see that I'm very relaxed, and uh, that's because I have one of my good friends in Second Life here with me, uh, George Jorgovsky, uh, also known as Curious George. Uh, he's uh, an astrophysicist at uh, Caltech and also is very much involved in virtual worlds with the Caltech Virtual Astronomy Group. Uh, and so he's been doing this sort of thing for years, and so I have no problem at all just uh, sitting back and uh, enjoying the talk that we're going to have in Second Life. And uh, the subject is also just fascinating. What's going to happen to education as a result of all the technological innovations that have uh, gone on in the past couple of years? We're, we're talking not only about uh, virtual worlds, using that in education, but also um, massive open online courses, MOOCs they're called, uh, this is a way to really get to uh, thousands of people over the Internet with uh, educational courses and, and uh, the sorts of things that you would get in a regular classroom. More and more, those sorts of things are available online as well. And George has uh, some experience in that. And uh, really, it sounds like it's been uh, a fantastic adventure for you, George. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's, uh, what's on your mind and especially about uh, what the future of education holds. Well, thank you, Alan, for this kind introduction, and thanks, uh, Bridget, for keeping this, and good to see you all, virtually speaking. So um, this is something that has been looming more and more in my mind, um, and I really believe that we're at the beginning of a profound transformation of education in general, including higher education. And that transformation is thanks to the progress in information technology, which has changed everything else in civilized world, so why not education? Uh, for some years now, I've been getting more and more annoyed in how universities are really conducting their business in what's really thousand-year-old model, and that we're delivering education in a very inefficient and I think ridiculous fashion. Uh, the way I like to describe that is that if you look at the progress over the last thousand years, it's been phenomenal. In fact, it was only two-thirds of the last millennium that Newton showed up and 90% of the way through Einstein showed up and 98% of the way through the Internet or the web showed up. So the world is very different. Uh, but one thing hasn't changed at all. And in the medieval universities, you had a lector reading Bible scriptures, taking notes, and that's not very different from professors scribbling on a blackboard with a piece of fossilized plankton and students taking notes on a piece of paper, barely able uh -huh. to read what the old guy is saying. 
And so if you took professor from the University of Cordoba or Sorbonne or Naples some thousand years ago and put them in the middle of a modern city, they would go crazy. But if you put them in a normal university classroom, they'd be feeling like at home. So that's just wrong. And this will not be for the 21st century. So I was always looking into the ways in which education can be, should be transformed. So this is how I got to wandering through the MOOCs or online classes, which are now all the rage. Somehow, the last year or two, they became big, big fashion in academia. And I think this is largely because these university presidents and such begin to realize that the old model is over and that within 10 or 20 years, it will have institutions of higher learning completely unrecognizable, that things will change in education business more than they have changed, say, in newspapers or the music industry. And I'd say at this point, nobody really knows how to do this right. So we're all experimenting and trying to find out what to do. And my particular experiment was to teach a class at Coursera, one of the major providers of MOOCs, on observational cosmology. It was called Galaxies and Cosmology, and there's actual class that was teaching at Caltech to Caltech Astrophysics Sophomores. It was reasonably serious class. Uh, and I had five students in my class at Caltech, which is a typical number for that specialist audience. And over 28,000 people signed up for the online version which was amazing in itself. About half of them actually did painting, and by the time the class was over, there were only 2,000 remained. But that's still about 400 times more than the number of students in my real Caltech class. So it really is indicative of the scaling. Um, two of my colleagues, one in biochemistry and one in economics, were also doing Coursera classes. Between the three of us, more students signed up by an order of magnitude than the number of students who ever graduated from Caltech in any field whatsoever. And even at the end of these classes, there were many numbers of comparable. So the scaling of this is going to be truly phenomenal. And mm -hmm. I think we're moving from sort of subsistence agriculture form of education into an industrial farming form of education. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see which way things develop. Mm -hmm. So, um, lots of questions uh, come up about this: how how it's going to work as an academic model, how it's going to work as an economic model, and uh, as you say, you've been uh, trying to find uh, an avenue for uh, for taking a 21st century approach to education for quite some time. Uh, is this the sort of thing when you, you got involved in a MOOC, did you say, this is what I've been looking for, or were there some surprises, uh, some things that you hadn't considered that suddenly, uh, suddenly you realized, oh, this is more complicated than I thought it was? Well, yes, all of the above. Uh, I mean, I, I just wanted to try things. I always wanted to take my lectures so that I never have to give them again. In other words, <laughs> my original motivation was laziness, and then it turned out to be ten times more work to do it this way. Um, somehow always worked that way. Mm. But um, I, I frankly didn't know what to expect, and so my primary target audience were Caltech students. I did not water down the class. Uh, it was as rigorous online as it in real life except that online students didn't get Catholic homework and Catholic exams, um, simply because it's impossible to grade those 
by machine thousands and thousands of students. That's another interesting problem, by the way. <coughs> Excuse me. And I, I think I learned a lot. Uh, something that surprised me about this is mostly about the demographics of students, which is not something that I think will persist. Uh, right now, all these classes are free. And people take them, why not? Whether or not they have to. So as far as we can tell, uh, all students who finished my class, at least, about 20% were actual students, undergraduates or graduates somewhere in the world. And there were over 60 countries represented on all continents but Antarctica. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody else were simply citizens interested in science. Some of those were professional educators or even scientists in not the same field, but related, who wanted to expand professionally things they did. But there were a lot of people who were just interested in science or want to organize their knowledge, and kind of people who used to come to our meeting lectures, people who subscribe to Scientific American. And I was actually surprised how many of them they are and how seriously they took this whole thing. They, you know, mm -hmm. they would slave through the lectures and notes and Wikipedia and everything, and they really wanted to learn this stuff. And I was, I'm, I'm very impressed uh, by the tenacity and, and the desire. And I think that uncovered there is a huge pool of well, desire for this kind of instruction out there that we never like, anticipated. And maybe that ought to be another part of the way we transform education instead of just having certain age cohorts, which is then trained in classrooms for a certain number of years and then it's over, that education may become more of an extended lifelong learning process that's individually customized. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is one of the fundamental issues that we need to look at. And I have to mention just one student. Um, he was a Celtic alum, and he was 80 years old. <laughs> so even... Even as such, he was very active and intellectually vibrant, and he simply wanted to expand his horizons. I think that's wonderful. Probably when I'm eight years old, I'll be dead, but I sure hope to be at least half as smart as this guy. So what do you feel you got out of it? Is this something where uh, it uh, is... Are these classes, do they count as part of your course load? Uh, does the university see this as uh, something that is just as much a part of your job as uh, the classes that you teach in a classroom? Or uh, is it seen as something just extra, an experiment, and, and, uh, and really doesn't uh, give you any credit when it comes to uh, how you do your job for the university? Well, Caltech, uh, our organization signed up, which was set actually without consulting with faculty, which I know some people. So I thought we may as well start. And mm -hmm. three of us, four now, volunteered to do these classes uh, because we wanted to see what it's like. And uh, there is no obligation to do so. Uh, nobody tested it yet. But I think people who are not trying to get into some form of online education are simply in denial. They may not have jobs in 10 years' time. It's not clear at all to me what uh, profession a uh, university teacher, in fact, any teacher, will evolve into. Some people will be really good at delivering this material, and others will not be. And there may be a greater diversity of 
of teacher roles. And so, of course, different from you know, for undergraduate education versus graduate school, which is really learning how to do research, it's also different for university like Caltech, which is essentially a, a cutting-edge research organization that just pretends to be a school versus university that state university that educates tens of thousands of students at, at any given time. So I think we're going to have to rethink many uh, aspects of education in different roles and so on. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention a, a few things uh, now that we're into it that uh, people are, are certainly welcome to uh, click into Second Life and join us in the audience. Uh, I wrote an item about this on Cosmic Log. If you go to CosmicLog.com, you'll find uh, links to, uh, of course, listen to the show on Blog Talk Radio. But also, if you're into Second Life, you can uh, click on the links and uh, join us in the audience here. Uh, we've got a great crowd. Uh, but you don't need to be in Second Life. You can actually uh, ask questions using Twitter. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the form of a question as a tweet and then add the hashtag AskVS, as in Ask Virtually Speaking. And uh, we'll pick up that question and uh, and try to get it answered for you. And, of course, uh, if you're in Second Life, you can use the chat window and uh, ask a question. Be sure to put question in capital letters so that we really it really does stick out. Uh, uh, another um, issue is, um, you know, uh, you can contribute to uh, the Second Life uh, cause by uh, by just plunking a little donation in the the uh, donation area that we have on stage here. So that, those are some of the fun things about uh, about uh, uh, how we do it here. Now um, uh, we're already getting a question or two, and uh, wanted to pass that along from Ilsa Hess in, in Second Life. Uh, he's asked, she's asking about uh, your Coursera class, George. That it's finished up, but are you planning to do another? Uh, yes, I am. The, in fact, I'm using the materials that I created for the class that just finished as a supplementary material for a higher level class and also for visiting lectures that I'll be doing. I will be uh, probably redoing the same class next week, next winter. But also, in the next spring, I will be teaching an introductory astronomy class at Caltech for freshmen. And I'd like to do that one, but using a different platform, not for Sarah, but something different, just to see how other things work. So mm -hmm. um, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like to transfer all of my teaching into cyberspace in one form or, or another. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Wow. So are you thinking that at some point you're not going to be uh, in a physical classroom with students? Or how, how does that work if you're going to go completely... Uh, toward Coursera and other uh, forums for MOOC-type classes? Well, actually, there are multiple questions here. Uh, as far as my Caltech students are concerned, they're still physically present and they still get traditional homeworks and exams. That is going to be a very interesting uh, One second, I have to log off Skype and answer landline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and while George is taking care of that, I do want to remind people that uh, virtu virtually speaking is not just 
uh, one night a month. I do it one night a month, but but I have other uh, colleagues who take care of other shows, Tom Levinson and Jennifer Roulette. And uh, so every Wednesday you can get your dose of science from uh, Virtually Speaking Science. Okay. I'm here on the landline. Is this better? Oh, a lot better. That's fantastic. Oh. Well, that's technology for you. Um <laughs> So uh, you uncovered one of the important issues that uh, online education has to come to grips with, which is really proper testing and, and validation and quality control and granting of credits uh, to online students. And there are various ways in which people are thinking about doing this. For example, proctored exams for you know, show picture ID and you get your exam and it's guaranteed that you didn't cheat or something like that. But all these things will have to be sorted out by the education industry in years to come. And frankly, I don't really care. Uh, I care about really teaching people and don't really worry much about financial aspects of it or formal or you know, certification aspects. Um, there is another aspect to this, which is the human contact part. And I think this is a very interesting one that we can deliver our content online in a very efficient and scalable fashion. In fact, all of humanity's knowledge is already online, whether or not I give a single lecture or not. Um, so that works, and students can absorb it on their own time. They can watch the videos or, or, or read things and so on whenever they want, as many times as they need to, uh, but that's about uh, as far as the, delivering the content goes. Now, there is also the question of human interaction, which is an integral part of education, which is something that is very difficult to convey in a scalable fashion online. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think that immersive virtual reality, or I should say the future 3D web, as a better way of communication will play a significant role. Uh, those of you who have been actually participating in, in this type of lectures or activities in Second Life, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that there is 90% of the real-life fidelity in terms of human interactions and, and listening to people and so on. Um, not perfect, but technology is going to get hell of a lot better than the clunky Second Life interface that we have now. And I think this is going to be a very important component of any educational use. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm very keen on finding out how to do this, this right. You can also think in terms of virtual labs, something that we've been talking about for quite some time, uh, developing uh, virtual hands-on experiments, if you will. And uh, that is something else that I think a number of groups have been experimented with already. So I, I see that there is a great convergence of several different important uh, information communication technologies here that are enabling uh, this ongoing educational revolution to go forward. Uh, since this is such an important uh, issue for you, uh, have you come across people who are actually doing research or trying to develop the software tools for having better uh, immersive interfaces or better ways to knit all the tools for online information, uh, online education in a compelling way? Um, 
Not in any terribly well-organized fashion. I, I know that there is a very vibrant and active uh, education community, professional educator community in Second Life or virtual world in general. Um, and, you know, they've been playing with things like that. And, for example, um, uh, even in Bika, we had a simple experiment which Rob Knopp, or Prosper of Robos, as you may know him, um, mm -hmm. uh, made up a little uh, three-body gravitational interaction demo. So you can have three stars, which will interact gravitationally and move in some strange fashion or another. Um, and, and this was just a simple thing to do. Uh, we can easily uh, think of much more involved things. And in fact, there has been, I know there has been a lot of educational training use of virtual worlds for situational trainings like first responders, or military, or in fact, any of the simulators, like flight simulators and stuff like that. Medical schools as well, you know, why dissect real cadavers when you can have virtual one? Maybe you can even do like a little fantastic voyage. You can shrink yourself to a cell size if you want to explore human body. Um, so I think that there is a fantastic potential to create very effective, attractive, captivating educational materials. Uh, although I'm not aware of any systematic effort to do so, but it's only a matter of time before somebody does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just one quick question. Uh, uh, Carolyn is asking, can people go in and get the material that you just taught? And uh, I think someone else has actually answered saying, well, here's a link to the class, but uh, can, can someone go through the entire lecture series uh, just uh, through the archived videos? Um, well, yes and no. Uh, the way Coursera does this is that students who have registered for this class have access to the archive material forever. Um, students who are too late uh, do not. However, there will be next round of this next winter, and at that point, people who register will be able to see it. I'll hopefully improve some of it by now, uh, by then. Uh, personally, I think it should be available all the time. And actually, since I think I own this intellectual property, regardless of what Coursera says, I'd like to put all of these lectures on Caltech's YouTube channel and, and Caltech's iTunes U, or whatever they call it, uh, so that anybody anywhere can access it as they wish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what does Coursera get out of it? Do they uh, collect a registration fee from students? Uh, not yet. In fact, all these companies are trying to figure out how are they going to monetize it, just as universities are trying to figure it out. One thing that Coursera is thinking about is to sell the list of successful students to companies. Suppose you take classes in, in various fields of engineering, and then companies that do this kind of thing would love to know who are the smartest and best capable students who did that. Now, cosmology is not a very commercial enterprise, so I don't think this will really matter for what I do. Mm -hmm. But you can see that you know they can think of that. They also do think in charging uh, students. Uh, for example, uh, if you take proctored exams, they will yield certification that you have actually done something that actually has some formal value. Then you probably have to pay for that. Because right mm -hmm. now, Coursera students who took my class never had to pay a penny for anything, and they get uh, 
certificate that says the student or the student who registered in this name has taken this class but this carries no Caltech credit whatsoever. So essentially it's a, it's a great souvenir for them, a um, memento of their hard work, but it doesn't do them very much good in any formal sense. Now, obviously universities want to figure out how to do this right. And mm -hmm. uh, I think, at least in the United States, we have a huge price bubble on education. Uh, this is not the case in the rest of the world as far as I know, and you can't imagine students in most, say, developing countries paying $30,000, $50,000 per year, which is ridiculous. Um, so, on the other hand, if you can reach 100 times as many students, or 1,000 times as many students, if they pay a percent of what students are paying now, the university can still stay in business. And all that needs to be figured out. Are there some people who are biting their nails over this at universities, trying to figure out how they're going to be able to stay in business? Uh, have have some people already seen what you've seen and and uh, oh, become sure. concerned about uh, the obsolescence of the university? I'm sure, and I I hope that as many of them as possible can't sleep at night worrying about this because <laughs> I think what's going to happen to universities will make uh, what happens to newspapers and what happens to music industry look like child's play. And that's saying quite a bit because uh, speaking as a journalist, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a rocky road, even though I've spent the last uh, 17 years of my career in, on the Internet. Uh, it, it's uh, it's quite, a, quite a revolution that we've been seeing in the media industry. And, and do you think that the revolution that is facing the uh, academic world is going to be even bigger? Oh, absolutely, because it is all about bits, right? And all of our business models for anything were based on ownership of atoms, not bits, or physical presence. And so when you were buying a newspaper, you're actually paying some money for a physical object that somebody had to print and distribute and whatnot. It just happened to carry information on it. Same thing with music recordings. And now there are bits, and bits are infinitely copyable. So we have to figure out a completely different model in which people are compensated and, and the whole enterprise works. In terms of education, yeah, you, you can sell textbooks, and Lord knows those are overpriced. Uh, but now with e-books or even illegal copies of PDFs that you can find online, again, that becomes a non-viable business. We're also selling human presence that you actually have to be in a high school, I'm sorry, in a school room and listen to a teacher. But now you don't have to. Now your teacher is also behind your computer screen and you can summon him or her at any time you want. So. I think that general transition that the Internet has brought upon us of uh, shifting that focus of value from physical objects and physical presence to access to informational records of some sort or other, that is what's transforming everything. And I think education is probably more vulnerable to this transformation uh, than anything else. So vulnerable in, in terms of the traditional business model. but. The way I like to think of it is that it's enormously empowering and enabling that now we can reach a vastly number, larger number of people 
with the high quality content that we ever could. And mm-hmm. there was already a number of anecdotes or cases that people mentioned. Boy, we found this absolutely brilliant student in the outer Mongolia who is better than anyone we have here, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, sure, you can identify talent worldwide and bring maybe those students in to places like Caltech or Princeton or Stanford or whatever, but that is actually just an interim thing. I think the real thing to do is to to create genuine virtual scholarly communities that there can be, say, 10 times, 100 times more Caltech students distributed worldwide that they're getting same quality education, same rigorous things, same rigorous testing, and they are establishing professional networks too, but they can be residing anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And this is the way we're going, that we're truly virtualizing what it means to be a member of educational community or, or to partake of education as a process, just like anything else that, that's happening on the Internet. I mean, we, we see social media... Uh, even in the primitive form, something as badly designed as Facebook or, God forbid, Twitter, uh, are actually playing an important role in connecting people worldwide, people who would have never connected otherwise. Second Mike, for for example, is another excellent example of that. And that is only going to get better. And so I think it will be absolutely fascinating to watch what's going to happen. And speaking of uh, social media, there, there's really an interesting conversation that's going on with the Second Life chat uh, right now. Randolph Azaroff, for example, says, I'm not so sure that most people can learn without the social environment. And, and that gets back to uh, what you were talking about where uh, the act of education uh, may be more divorced from that idea of having people in a physical place. Uh, and I think what you were getting at is that the social environment becomes something that plays out online as much as it does in the physical world. Uh, but yet, uh, I think that physical interaction is so much of what we think of as the college experience, not only being together in the classroom, but being together on the campus, uh, in the campus pub, uh, whatever, Uh can you kind of uh, see how that those sorts of experiences might change as a result of the revolution that's coming? I think we're just going to see a broader spectrum of that. I mean, we already have a variety of ways in which people socialize online or establish genuine friendships online, even without ever seeing each other, or revive the old friendships on distance and so on. And right now, the technology we have is still fairly primitive. Uh, but... In terms of physical presence, well, you could well imagine that you still have your circle of friends and acquaintances, and you can go to your neighborhood pub and so on, and you're talking to students who may not be students in your class or your virtual university, but they're still having university experience. They can still compare notes. Um, So there are varieties of social experience that are involved, and I think communication technology has been evolving constantly in the direction of greater immediacy and higher fidelity that uh, now online we we can interact with each other in in a way that's much higher subjective quality than we would say just by telephone or by writing letters or things like that. And and that's going to get better yet. So um, some form of 
uh, immersive and augmentative virtual reality, I think, is going to play a crucial role uh, in, in enabling this human interaction part of learning. Mm -hmm. And moreover, because it's always open to you, the world is always online. You can always go to it. And mm -hmm. if I wake up in the middle of the night, I can't go and meet my fellow students, say, from camp. Well, okay, maybe that's not a good timing, but you get what I mean. So, but right. on the other hand, there is 24-7 community out there on the Internet, in cyberspace, in some form or other, and we'll be able to connect everywhere at all times. And you also mm -hmm. choose people with whom you want to socialize. You don't have to socialize with just anybody who, is by random accident, is taking the same class. So, so I think that this will enrich the the whole experience, or enable a variety of possible experiences that include networking and, and social interactions. Uh, it's happening already, and so just may as well try to channel some of that for educational uses and not simply uh, entertainment. Mm -hmm. Now, Morgan Northmead uh, had some interesting thoughts, too, uh, kind of comparing the educational experience to the experience we have when we go online and say, uh, look for something on Amazon.com, uh, where you have mass customization. Uh, each person can get exactly what he or she wants based on databases that track individual preferences, that the educational experience might be something where you go uh, to um, go to a device or a computer and uh, the computer tells you what you're going to be interested in. Gee, I've got a few minutes. What, what can I do as, uh, as education as a sort of a form of entertainment or shopping or browsing? Are there any lessons yeah, I think that... that's exactly right. I think that's, mm -hmm. in fact, going to be probably one of the most important parts of this, that uh, you can get education to be absolutely individually customizable, because right now we're doing it in this one-size-fits-all um, just because it's inefficient to try to do it individually. But with everything available online and some tools by which you can create your own path through educational process to be assisted. You have to take this and then you take that and, and so on. But only learning stuff that you really will need or want to know as opposed to some things that you'll never need or couldn't care less about. I think that's going to be a very important component of it because people can then really discover what they're good at and pursue that. Do what they really like and not what just happens to be randomly created in, in a curriculum that's written for everybody in the population. Um, so I think that's going to be actually a, a very important component. It's, it's not just massive part, it's really the individual part that, that is going to be profoundly transformative. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Also, we may well um, end up with some sort of machine intelligence assisted learning um, there's been things like that in science fiction. You get tutors that guide you through educational process. But, you know, the simple example of Amazon rec book recommendations is like a very, very low-level example of that. You know, if you learn mm -hmm. about neural nets, you may also want to learn about uh, support vector machines, whatever. Um, uh, so I think all, all of that's good, and all of this will, this will have to pan out somehow or other. 
I'm kind of waiting for that uh, uh, scene in uh, The Matrix where uh, Keanu Reeves says, whoa, I know Kung Fu. Uh, suddenly you have that knowledge that you need and and uh, and download it. But I, I suppose that uh, education is a more complicated process than that, that uh, that you can automate a lot of it, but but we're still not at the age where you can just kind of download that information directly into your brain and leave it at that. Oh, yeah, I think that's a whole different story. I mean, I, I think the information technology improves according to the Moore's Law, but our brains do not. Our, I think human bandwidth is more or less constant, and it's not improving very fast, if at all. Uh, so the question it's not a question of shoveling more information in our brains, but rather learning things more effectively and more conveniently and maybe learning them throughout your life as you need them uh, instead of just cramming it all, learning for the exam and then forgetting it you know, month, one month later. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, one of our, our Second Life uh, uh, audience members asks, uh, this sheepskin thing saying that I'm educated, how is that going to work? Uh, the verification that you have set, uh, you, you know, that you've reached a particular standard, and that kind of goes back to that whole issue of uh, the role of the university in in uh, uh, kind of certifying that that you've reached a certain level, whether it's through grades, credits, uh, diplomas, whatever. Uh, well, that'll still be around, right? Well, there has to be, of course, there has to be some sort of verifiable. Uh, assessment of, of quality control, if you will, that I, I, I touched upon earlier, that there has to be credible way in which people are tested at the end of whatever learning experience they have that they actually know how to do this, as of whether it's computing Friedman models or fixing cars or, or, or operating on people. You know, there has to be a well-controlled and well-understood certification process, which is probably going to be different for whatever we do now, um, maybe more diverse. Most employers, for example, would like to know, do you have the skills that they need? They don't care if you know about Renaissance poetry. Good for you if you do. But you know, they want to know whether you can actually fix telephone or whatever. Um, so I think we're going to see a, a broader variety of what it means to be educated at a certain level. Right now, there is high school, there is bachelor's, there is master's, there is PhD, or whatever uh, degrees you care to name. But instead of that, I think we'll probably move into some form of educational continuum that people would know certain things and, and will be able to prove that they learned those things in a way that's believable. And then that brings up the question of brand names. like. Right now, um, universities, some universities cash out on, on their brand name. And mm -hmm. certain parts of New England where having diploma from Harvard is a meal ticket for the rest of your life, regardless what you actually know how to do or do. Um, and I think there is going to be some kind of brand name quality remaining so that Harvard's and Princeton's and Caltech's and MIT's of the world will still still probably be top of the heap. But on the other hand, you can probably get fantastic education from no-name colleges or, or whatever replaces them, um, 
and there's going to be some sort of objective standardized criteria for any given thing that will say, well, this person knows subject X at an A level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the questions that came in is uh, we've, we talked about uh, how education can be suited uh, so that it, it really fits your preferences, what you want to learn. And uh, Randolph asked, uh, isn't that a road to over-specialized people? Uh, kind of the, getting back to the idea of uh, so-called liberal arts education, a broad education as opposed to uh, one that is so specialized that you just know how to, I don't know, fix this widget or or you like black holes and so that's that's all 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 you uh, learn about. Well, I, I think that's probably going to be a non-issue because even right now, uh, what happens after a certain number of years. People really know just that one thing that they're doing, and mostly they're learning it on the job, right? And they've probably forgotten most of the things they learned in school. Uh, people will be learning in more broad sense because they want to, and I think somehow there will probably be a cultural advantage of some sort or other. Uh, you know, people who are well-educated or broadly educated will tend to mingle with people like that, and all that's correlated. So I, I think it's actually not very different from what's happening now. It might be slightly more sharply defined, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Really <laughs> One of the things... Brave new world, okay? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> One of the things that we talked about uh, before the show was the idea of the function of the university as a research institution and as an educational institution, and you thought that the way things were going, those two functions might become further and further apart. Yeah, I, I think something that's always baffled me is to what extent we have blended together uh, research and education in universities, and even though you know they're very different things, at the graduate school level, they're the same thing. You learn research by doing research, but for undergraduate education, it does you exactly no good to be in a top-notch research university. And in fact, I would say you probably get a lot better undergraduate education at, say, a strong, small liberal arts school where they hire professors because they can teach than, say, major research school where they hire professors because they can do research. And usually they couldn't care less about teaching, and that's a chore. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we are going to get redefining what it means to be a professor. Uh, it's not clear to me at all how well this is going to work out and in which direction because the way the federal funding for science has been shrinking is very worrisome. Uh, if you decouple federal funding for science from obligation to teach people, then it may be even harder to justify. Mm, uh, yeah, that's a good point. That. Uh, Research funding may uh, tend to subsidize the teaching aspect of a university's operations. Well, actually, it's more the other way around. I ah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. It depends I'm on the school, I think, if you're paying. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, too, I, I think, really has to uh, be rethought. On the other hand, I mean, we've seen profound sociological changes in the research world driven by Internet in the sense of making 
information and participation available to anybody with internet connection that all of the scientific literature has moved online all of a lot of data is now available online and tools to do this so that mm -hmm. art researchers anywhere can do first-rate science and they can communicate it to the worldwide community in effective fashion uh, so you no longer have to be physically present in a little hotspot you know, famous research university X in order to do top-notch science. You can be anywhere and be part of that community and contribute just as well as anybody else. Mm -hmm. So that is already changing sociology of science in some good ways, uh, but uh, I suspect we'll probably see even more of that when it comes to education. One of the things that I started thinking about when, when we talked before was uh, this idea of having uh, sort of a student community that uh, isn't necessarily tied as much to uh, the business of education, but you get that social aspect of it. For example, uh, retirement communities. There are a lot of retired people who like to live together and do things together. They They may have different pursuits. Some of them may just want to kind of uh, sit around and watch TV. Others may go out and play golf. Uh, the same thing, perhaps, with the student community, where you have something like the the uh, MIT uh, housing development, and uh, it's very suited to the student environment. You get that interaction, and yet the students may actually get their their education uh, through uh, an online course, where uh, you have the residence factor. Uh, that applies to the physical place, but it's divorced from the actual educational component of that part of their lives. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think we're going to look at the far broader meaning of what it means to be educated, and when and how, and in, in what, uh, and by whom. You know, one thing that struck me with uh, the Coursera class I was doing is that the way the students communicated was mostly through discussion threads on forums, which are very old-fashioned looking mm -hmm. text thingies, and I thought this was awful, um, but somehow those, those were the most popular. And what impressed me is not just the qu quality of some of the questions that have been asked, but the answers that were provided by other students, that somehow this community of students taking my class was doing self-crowdsourcing, that people were offering their own little expertise when they had, so that I didn't have to try to answer that question. Somebody already did it pretty good. And that mm -hmm. is an interesting thing, that you, you start having this critical mass of broader expertise that students can learn from each other, uh, in addition to be learning from whoever is delivering the class. Mm-hmm. Does this sort of thing scare you? Uh, do you worry that you're going to be replaced by some sort of uh, super intelligent robot? Oh no, I'd love to be replaced by super intelligent robots <laughs> if I can go and do fun stuff, you know, like write science fiction or chat with my friends in in some virtual reality place. No, just kidding. I, I, yes, I think <laughs> I'd love to have some machine intelligence help in everything I do. Uh, isn't that what technology is all about? To outsource mm -hmm. chores, uh, mm -hmm. we can do. To have a Watson-type assistant. Sure, Any, anything helps. Well, actually, I have you know, actually, 
come to think of it, I already have artificial uh-huh. intelligence assistants. Uh, they're called Google and <laughs> Encyclopedia, Wikipedia or things like that, um, where I don't know something and I find out and then I can just put a link to something I think is a good explanation instead of me having to type the whole damn thing myself. Huh. Uh, are there... Um uh, I, I think you mentioned uh, this whole concern about uh, obsolescence of, uh, of academic institutions. Uh, are there any particular types of institutions that you think might be in more danger than others? And uh, the flip side of that would be, are there some uh, institutions or aspects of the institution that might turn out to really take advantage of this uh, of the trends that are sweeping over education right now? Well, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, I mean, there is always going to be some stratification of quality. There is always going to be people trying to game the systems. Um, but in the end, I think we're always moving towards more objective assessment. And uh, I think overall things will get better. But... How is this all going to shake out? Who knows? And, of course, education at a different level is a very different proposition. You, you see something like Khan Academy, which is aimed at much younger students, which is wonderful. But that's not what graduate students need, right? Um, and so I think there are some commonalities here, but there is also going to be a lot of uh, level-specific as well as field-specific things and so on. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've got about 10 minutes left. I thought maybe we would uh, shift a little bit uh, since we are in Second Life and since you've been thinking about Second Life and virtual worlds uh, for so many years. Uh, are there any new trends that you see in the development of virtual worlds or do you feel as if uh, things have really stabilized for better or worse in, in the way that people are approaching the 3D web and, and uh, immersive uh, experiences? Um, well, as far as I can tell, uh, we've been in a state of very slow progress for the past few years. I think uh, Second Life has certainly passed its time and has never been improved. Uh, I'm amazed that there hasn't been a really uh, a major market winner that replaced it because it, to me it's obvious that it has a huge potential. Uh, right now it seems to me that um, in terms of generic platforms, Unity 3D-based worlds are getting somewhat popular, OpenSIM much less so. Um, something else is going to replace it. But um, I think the whole paradigm of uh, virtual worlds is closed in things like Second Life or World of Warcraft or any of the games is bound to uh, really disappear because what we really need is full-blown 3D web, the cyberspace of cyberpunk science fiction uh, where all of humanity's activities and knowledge really are mimic, you know, mirrored in, in this intellectual informational construct that is constantly being accessed. Mm-hmm. And that is a very different story. Now, there are, there are some profound technological architectural issues about this, and people who are into this kind of thing are, argue endlessly 
uh, about very ornate technical issues that are involved. But that's where it has to go. Um, we have to replace the flat browser web paradigm with 3D browsing, whether it's through, probably it's going to be some combination of immersive and augmentative virtual reality, you know, like next next, next generation Google Glass, um, as well as your 3D screens that do not require you to wear any kind of goggles and haptic interfaces a la next, next generation Kinect that will capture your body language and expressions and stuff like that. So all that is very much driven by commercial needs. Currently, that's mostly games. But I think it's inevitable because we already see glimmers of all of this, and every time you try some of these things, you say, how can I do without, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting uh, how you brought up the game connection, and, and it does seem as if uh, games are kind of a, a real frontier for, for this sort of interaction, whether you're talking about haptic tools, uh, connect uh, com- uh, game systems that are kind of able to read your movements and, and respond to them, or talking about uh, the type of immersive gaming that you see. Uh, but it stays a little bit in the game world. For some reason, uh, other sectors of uh, of the, the online universe haven't seemed to have drawn the lessons from from the gaming world. It, it, does it seem that way to you? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that there there isn't more of a crossover, uh, especially since games are so spectacularly commercially successful. Um, and so pervasive. And I, I was surprised to learn that several years ago, games started making more money than movies worldwide, which is kind of amazing. And now it's much, much more. Now uh, an opening weekend for a new version of Halo or whatever makes more money than blockbuster movie opening weekend. And I'm sure people pay attention to this. But right now, it's so easy to do it just by doing games as opposed to try to do something more serious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I think it it will happen. Uh, And really, I am surprised that we haven't seen more of this. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the questions that came in, have you considered the possibility that the commercial silos, for example, Facebook, Google, and so on, would prefer not to support virtual worlds? Oh, I think... Any overly successful company has zero incentive to reinvent itself if they have successful product. Um, and I think they're only forced into that because competition is going to eat them alive. That's why. Um, usually these things come from, you know, out-of-nowhere startups. You know, like two grad students at Stanford with a clever search algorithm kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, Second Life could have been things like that, except that, well, you know, some reason or another, they seem to have made every possible managerial mistake they could possibly make, and things just didn't catch on. They're also probably on a bleeding edge as opposed to cutting edge. Mm-hmm. They started too early technology was not mature enough and, and it kind of blew the steam and you know climbed the hype curve and now it's slowly climbing out of you know the, the throw of disappointment um, 
Yeah, you often see that with uh, with technologies. For example, I remember back in, gosh, it was the 70s and 80s, uh, there were experiments in online news distribution, for example, Vutron. They didn't go anywhere, and it was just a time, you know, an idea whose time had not yet come. It took another decade or more for the technology to catch up to such an extent that you could have uh, a revolution in online news distribution, and, and we're still seeing the, the effects of that with the rise of mobile and the rise of uh, social media as the way that people get their news. So yeah, there is there is also a purely irrational component to it. Like you know, you'd never guess that something will really take off as as much as they did, especially since they may not be terribly well designed to begin with. You know, Facebook is a prime example. It's a god awful interface, uh, but there is billion plus people on it, so that's that's how things happen. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we talk about uh, you know uh, what you're doing when you wear your scientific hat? Uh, are there is there anything you can say about the projects you're working on in astrophysics right now? Um, in whole three minutes that we have left, <laughs> right? We, we uh, can make it four minutes for you. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't think I can spin particularly interesting story in in three or even four minutes. Um, <laughs> no, that's several all right. Things have been kind of in the news lately. Um, one is the first release of results from the Planck satellite. The mm-hmm. new generation cosmic microwave background cosmology mission, and that was that was pretty nice. Um, by and large, they confirmed and improved previous results. And there were some small changes in cosmological parameters, were just mildly surprising, but not really. And there were a couple things that, if they really survive subsequent analysis and better data do look surprising, um, that they see more what we call power at large scales, more clustering or fluctuations in, in the matter distribution of very large scales than is comfortably explained by the current favorite models. But it's not you know, scandalously bad. It's not like we have to for- forget everything we've done. It's just surprising. Uh, so on the one hand, it's disappointing that, that they actually haven't found something that's obviously dramatically wrong with our past understanding of cosmology, so it's reassuring. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, they did find some, you know, some subtle things that actually probably hints of more interesting things to come. Mm-hmm. That does seem to be uh, kind of the theme for uh, the frontiers of uh, physics right now is that uh, a lot of the new information uh, really confirms the models that have been uh, set out, you know, over the past few decades. And that applies to the Higgs boson, uh, where it looks so far, far as if it's pretty much a standard model Higgs, and there are no surprises, no strange quirks that could pull you into a regime of new physics. And, and Planck is very similar, that it's largely confirmatory of the cosmological models that, that have been established. There's nothing that is going to upset any apple carts. Enough to keep uh, the theorists busy, but uh, 
but uh, maybe not as exciting a world as as people hoped when these when these big projects were uh, established. Well, you know that's okay. I mean, I think sciences do go through their arc of completeness, and uh, here is you know, just simple example: geography, right? Um, we pretty much know where everything is on planet Earth, right? Mm-hmm. And we know it's pretty close to sphere. It will be really surprising you send satellite out and find it's actually cube, right? <laughs> That's just not going to happen. It, okay, you can improve a little bit, you know, wrinkles on the surface kind of stuff, but it's not going to change the basics. And I think cosmology is kind of getting into that uh, regime now. I think in terms of galaxy formation evolution, we, we are already in that regime. We kind of have a big picture in place. A lot of details to sort out, but no huge surprises. And so the the frontier moves somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you were going to advise a, a young physicist uh, what the hot new field uh, would be, would you have any advice, or is it just completely difficult to predict that sort of thing? Well, well, of course it's hard to predict, especially the future. But <laughs> as Yogi Berra said. Um, Something that I always found deeply fascinating is the whole business of complex systems and emergence and, and, and things like that. Um, that has undergone its own hype back in 1980s and 90s and so on, and, and nobody knew what, quite what to do next. But I think that is likely to be a very exciting intellectual frontier in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one question that came in, uh, is there more high-energy physics to be done? Uh, just kind of going back to that idea that the picture of the the world, uh, in, in some corners of the world at least, is pretty much complete. Is high-energy physics one of those corners? Well, some aspects of it probably, but others are not. You know, in some sense, chemistry is complete. We know all the chemical elements. We know how chemistry works on a quantum level, but there's still chemists who are professionally and productively employed doing stuff in chemistry and not in, not inventing new elements, right? So it's maybe something mm-hmm. like that will be happening in high-energy physics as well. I'm not an expert on that. It's hard to tell. Well, uh it's a fascinating world, uh, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, the frontiers of the universe and what, what Planck uh, is finding or whether we're talking about the frontiers of cyberspace where uh, so much is changing in the way that we present this information. And I, I think uh, this evening has been an example of of how new media really kind of stretch our minds. Uh, I, I got to say that the discussion in, in Second Life has been as uh, interesting and as vibrant as, as I've seen it. And so I want to thank everyone who's shown up in the audience in Second Life. And uh, if you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, uh, please join us uh, if, if you can. Uh, otherwise, please uh, stay tuned for the next uh, running of uh, virtually speaking science uh, and thanks so much to, to George Jarkovsky from Caltech who has been my guest tonight it, it's always a pleasure and uh, there are already a lot of people who are clamoring in the audience for George to come back and so I, I hope you will George uh, it's been a real pleasure well thank you Alan thanks everybody else <laughs>
and now I'm going to do my famous disappearing act. <laughs> okay, poof away. And uh, thanks again to uh, Sherry Reason at Virtually Speaking and the Exploratorium and Pulse Avatar and James Emley for the Cosmic Log theme. And uh, my advice to you is to keep watching the skies. And uh, the truth is out there. <laughs>